theory or practice, it's a constant battle when you're teaching. I'm Dr. Joy Patterson, the Director of Educator Preparation at Governor State University and the College of Education. And I'm Dr. Amy Viaclia, Governor State University Assistant Professor of English Teacher Education. In teaching and learning theory versus practice, Dr. Joy and I will duke it out over whether theory or practice wins the match. Yeah, I can't wait. So whether you're a teacher, an education leader, or looking to learn more about the field, you can hear from industry experts on education topics. We invite you to be the judge as we box it out. Stick around to find out who wins this week's match. Hello, Dr. Joy. Hello, Dr. Amy. How are you? I'm doing well. And I love our conversations, especially when we can bring classroom teachers, researchers, and policy changers to the conversation. And you know what's even better? is when they are all three. So allow me to introduce Mr. Rand Miller, who is a diversity and ed staff writer and published author and high school social science teacher. He has contributed to scholarly journals, textbooks, and many different platforms on the topics of race in higher education, urban schools, sports, and the African-American diaspora and professional development for educational professionals. In addition to those things, he serves as a program director for a local school district, a professional development facilitator, and a public speaker. Mr. Miller is also the founder of the Urban Education Mixtape, supporting urban educators and parents of students in urban schools. He is also the author of an upcoming book, which we're going to find out a little bit more about today, Resistance Stories from Black History for Kids, with an anticipated release of January 2023. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to join you both. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us after a long day at work, and it's Monday, so so happy to see you. I think people are going to know why you're a professional speaker after this interview. I'm excited. (laughs) Unlike me, I want to talk about your education journey. So unlike me, I would consider myself an at-risk kid growing up. So unlike me, the remarkable you. I want you to tell us about your education journey. I mean, because you weren't the stereotypical inner city kid, you know, who persevered through tough times. You know, it's because you put in the good hard work that catapulted you to where you are now. Can you talk more about your education journey? Sure. So I started, I'd I'd say not different, but I'm, I'm an only child. So My parents were able to allocate resources in various ways. I was put in Catholic school. I'm a parochial school kid. I I went to Catholic school from pre-K to grade 12. But the interesting thing is that my background in Catholic school, I went to school in Camden, New Jersey. If, If anyone knows anything about Camden, New Jersey, it's probably one of the more impoverished areas uh, in the country. And also for a number of years, it was known as the most dangerous city in the country, according to its population. So I went to Catholic school there from pre-K to eight. And then I went to a Catholic high school in the suburbs area named Cherry Hill. And from there, I went to Rutgers University in Camden and got my uh, undergraduate degree, went back, got a master's degree, and then and, and went back and got another master's. So I think that for me, I was always stressed the importance of, of getting an education. I think that for, for many people like me, however, the journey was trying to figure out what it was that I would do. You know, you heard about college being important. And even in my current role uh, working in schools, students understand that getting a college degree is important, but they don't necessarily see 
college as a means to an end, they see college as the end because a lot of times in urban schools, we're like college, college, college. And so kids are brought up thinking that. And for me, it was similar. You know, I needed, I know I needed to go, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And it took some time to figure that out. However, my time in Catholic school, my time in college gave me a real understanding for having a passion for working with people, understanding the context of young people struggling and dealing with challenges in urban areas and sort of what that meant with respect to their trajectory and how history plays a role in that. And so with that, I was really destined to land in a spot where I'm an educator because it gives me an opportunity to tackle all of those various aspects of, you know, what our young people are dealing with. And I'm not pigeonholed. I can do it in the classroom. I can do it with professional development. I can write. And so it really, I was prepared to be where I am from my journey in education. Well, in the bio that I read, it, it's a lot about you being a writer and as well as an educator. So what was it about your experience as an educator that inspired you to write and advocate for teachers in the way that you do? So I think that it took an opportunity for me to uh, really be in the classroom and experience what teachers go through for me to really understand. And of course, understanding what young people have gone through being a student and then looking from the opposite lens working with students you know I, I saw the challenges I saw the things that that teachers had to deal with with respect to uh, the lack of prep that they may have had the amount of work that they often get both for the classroom and otherwise uh, what is expected of them by administration and as well as parents as well as policymakers so, my thought in terms of writing initially was about one sort of relaying those stories, particularly from the perspective of being a black educator, but also, you know, creating a platform for those teachers to get support. That's why I started the Urban Education Mixtape, which is a blog, but my purpose in doing that blog was simply to provide teachers in urban areas with, you know, a place where they can go to get some guidance, to get some help, to get some strategies to help them with what they're doing in urban schools. So I, I just had a passion, still have a passion for working with teachers and whether it's writing or doing professional development with them, partnering with them to help make what they do in the classroom that much better and adjust to the constraints of being an educator today, especially, uh, that, that's always just been a goal of mine and, and a passion that really developed from my work in the classroom. Yeah, I wanna commend you on putting that blog together. I've gone to it several times now. I think it's awesome. Thank you. And also for your commitment to writing, because as a classroom teacher, I mean, you're in the daily grind. You're doing the work. And it's not too often that we meet teachers that are in the P-12 classrooms that are doing the scholarly work that you're doing. So I want to commend you on doing that and, and just encourage you to continue to do that. I want to I shift to some of the topics that you write about, which is about Black teachers. And I want to talk about the significance of Black teachers teaching Black children. And the same is for Latinx teachers teaching, you know, any ethnic group teaching their own. And we know what research says when you have a teacher that looks like you. So I just want you to talk about the significance of having that, of having, like you. I went to a parochial school, you know, growing up, even though I consider myself an at-risk kid for a number of reasons, divorce, household, all the, you know, a number of reasons. The safest place that my mother thought that we could be was a parochial school. And so I didn't have teachers that looked like me. Mm -hmm. You know, I went all the way through high school, still didn't have a teacher that looked like me, got my undergraduate, didn't have a teacher that looked like me. It wasn't until my second graduate degree that mm -hmm. I ever saw a teacher that looked like me. So guess what? I didn't think about becoming a teacher then. <laughs> so talk about the significance, the importance for Black teachers 
and black kids to have black teachers? Yeah, that's that's good. That's a great question. It's very important. We know what the data says, and certainly there are numerous studies that talk about this, to talk about how Black students who've had a Black teacher, uh, even same race, same gender uh, as well, uh, they're less likely to fail high school. They're more likely to graduate, less likely to be disciplined disproportionately, more likely to attend college, more likely to show academic promise with their grades. So we know what the data says, and there's tons of research that bears this stuff out. I think I want to talk about sort of those personal reasons. You know, I think you hit the nail on the head, Dr. Joy, the idea of being in a school where the teachers don't look like you, much of the content doesn't reflect who you are, doesn't reflect your history. I remember being in class in high school, I took a class in 10th grade called World and European History, and while the class was a really good class, I thought to myself, like, man, it would be nice if we had African history. Why is that? And, you know, I, I put two and two together and saying, well, like, it's because there really isn't anyone to vouch for it, not from the young person perspective, but from the faculty perspective, because there weren't any black teachers. I don't think that there was any mal malicious sort of intent or lack of care on the part of the teachers that were there. But I do think that having a black educator would put that more so at the forefront uh, than it would otherwise. I, I wanted to be a teacher for someone like me. When I, when I look at myself, I'm, I always ask myself, what would I have wanted when I was in grade school? What would I have wanted when I was in high school? And so I, I try to be that educator. I try to be that teacher with, with my young people. I try to create what Dr. Greg Carr from uh, Howard University calls governance spaces, where my students and I, we see each other not as the world sees us, but as we see ourselves and we're able to relate to one another in that way. And it's so important when you have teachers of color, particularly Black teachers for Black children, where they can do that and, and not only teach the content, not only teach what young people need to learn, what they may not have learned, but to do so in a way that is culturally responsive, that is able, where, where the teacher is able to relate to students in a particular way. I grew up in Camden, New Jersey. I teach in Camden, New Jersey. And so when having these lessons, I can, you know, relate to my young people in the context of being from Camden, I can have conversations with them about the city and just strengthen those connective tissues between the two of us, with multiple people and uh, with us. Um, I can do that in a way that other teachers may not be able to. And it's not so much just simply because I'm Black, but because of having a shared experience. And again, creating that level of governance amongst the group of people that are in my room. So um, that's what you get when you get those teachers. That's what you get. We, we, we want to give back to those who, who remind us of us. We want to give back to those communities. We want to do more than just what our job description tells us. And that's really the power of, of having teachers of color in the classroom. I, I know I did well without having those teachers of color, but I can tell you when I got to college and I've, I had those two college professors of color completely changed my world, completely changed uh, my outlook. And one last thing, it wasn't until I had a graduate level educator who was a professor of mine that suggested me to be a teacher. Whereas I heard in a conference maybe two weeks ago that, that, that white women who are the majority of teachers hear about becoming a teacher at third grade. And I heard it in graduate school. So, you know, I think that plays a role, too, in, in how we don't have as many Black teachers or other teachers of color in the classroom. I want to segue into the research piece. I know that I didn't know what a research question might look like until I was faced with some different issues as an educator in the classroom in my eighth grade class. What about the students' literacy skills? Where are we getting the professional development to help our students? And so that propelled me into the research. Talk about your entrance into research. What propelled you to ask big questions? Mm. And maybe we can talk about what some of those big questions are right now. So, yeah, I think I was in grad school and I was taking some PhD level courses and I was taking a course where I think we were using Stata 
uh, which is, a, you know, a statistical program, and we were just trying to figure out research questions. And I know I wanted to look at education, and for whatever reason, it didn't really click like I would have wanted it to in that class. But, you know, the learning clicks after class, which I guess is a good thing, too. I wasn't taking any classes at one particular point, and I just started playing around with some data. And in New Jersey, we have the state data at our fingertips, and uh, there's some federal data from the civil rights data collection. And I was pretty heavy in, you know, thinking about questions involving school discipline and disproportionate discipline. And this was around the time where uh, President Obama had, you know, stopped some of that um, disproportionate discipline through policy that he was trying to push throughout the Department of Education throughout the schools in the nation. And so I was really interested in the impact of Black teachers. I'm sorry, I got the intercom going on. I was really interested in the impact Black teachers had on Black students with respect to disproportionate discipline. So my first for, foray in really getting some hard data published, I published an article in, I guess it was beginning of 2017, and we looked at disproportionate discipline with Black teachers and Black students in schools in New Jersey controlling for a myriad of factors. And we saw that where there were more Black teachers in the school district, and I think we had a sample of uh, roughly, I'd say 500 to 600 schools in the state school districts, where we or found that where there were more Black teachers, uh, Black students were less likely to be suspended. They were less likely to be suspended out of school, less likely to be suspended in school with Black teachers. Uh, I did the same sort of analysis in that study. It was a regression analysis with looking at Black teachers, uh, Black male teachers, and Black female teachers. And there were some similarities, a little bit of some, some differences according to the variables. But overall, we found that, that Black students with Black teachers are less likely to be suspended in the state of New Jersey. So that was really like my first like, wow, like this is huge. And, and I was able to go to a professor of mine that I was close with and, and he encouraged me and helped me find the right journal to get that published in. But that really sort of took, took off my desire to really do research even as an educator just to, to explore these issues and, and, and hopefully use the research to encourage educators that I work with and also to use in professional development just to prove the point of the power of, of Black teachers. I, w- I want to talk about some research that's not so good, that's been bothering me for a long time. And I get pretty emotional about it all the time when I talk about the research of African-American teachers leaving the profession faster than any other group. Mm -hmm. We know that research tells us about 75% of students go to schools where they are the majority. So then that tells me that most African-American teachers are probably at predominantly Black schools. That's where the majority, where you're going to find the majority of African-American teachers. But they are leaving the profession. So we just talked about, on one hand, the value of having a teacher that looks like you, the impact that it has, not just in student learning, but in social skills as well. So the impact is huge and let, and yet they are leaving like within their first five years of the profession. Dr. Amy and I, we talked to one such person and it was a very emotional session to talk to this young lady who was a career changer, who desperately wanted to be a teacher and was so proud that she made that change. It wasn't for more money. And she actually got to a point where she made that change and she wanted to give back. And then she left the profession after one year and she was so disheartened. So can you, t- can you speak to what you see as reasons attributing to African-American teachers leaving the profession so quickly? Mm. So there's a few, but I'll, I'll centralize it to two. I think one such reason is it has to do with, with pay. I didn't realize until I became a teacher and I was alternate route. I didn't start out with with teacher education program and decide this is what I wanted to do. I'm a career changer as well. And and I didn't realize until I got into the profession that it's expensive. 
to become a teacher between paying for your praxis, paying for your license, you know, paying for the mentoring that you have to pay for, you know, all these sort of things, you may not have the income in the moment to pay for that kind of stuff. So you may have to borrow here, do this, do that, on top of the pay where you may not, you may not be getting what you would have liked to get according to sort of the constraints of being in society, right? You know, housing is expensive, whether you're buying a house or renting, you may have to live at home, you, you know, other bills and things of that nature. And so, you know, the unfortunate thing is that you have some folks that, that struggle with that. And, and in order to get more black teachers to stay, you know, you want to increase salaries too. I think the other thing is going back to that idea of uh, how to become a teacher going alternate route, we make it difficult for teachers to be, you know, people to become teachers. And I'm thinking about all the uh, wonderful uh, African-American scholars and scientists and all these things that went to college and HBCUs that, that are, you know, just, just intellectual heavyweights in their field, but they don't have the requisite certifications to come and teach in a classroom and we don't make it easy for them to do so I think that's another part one of the bigger reasons has to do with the idea of the invisible tax and 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 that term was used by uh, former secretary of education John King when under the Obama administration that's basically the the tax that schools put on black educators whether it is looking at that black educator, particularly black male educators as the disciplinarian, the chief disciplinarian, the de facto disciplinarian of the school where that's what they're quote unquote good for. You send the kids, the problem kids to those teachers. Also that that teacher is looked at as the quote unquote translator, right? They answer all things black people to those white educators, right? So there, there's that part too. And then and there's also the idea of not looking at those teachers as content content experts, that their content knowledge is not what is important, or at least not what they're looked to, right? And, and you have a lot of teachers that just want to teach like everybody else. And then lastly, the idea of, you know, those teachers having to teach Black children how to code switch, how to act in certain areas, or yeah, we're in school, so you need to act this way, like it's our responsibility to do that. So I think that that plays a huge role as well for why, yeah. you know, those teachers leave. Yeah, and I, I would agree with you. Dr. Amy and I, we had the opportunity to go to a Bill and Melinda Gates conference, and there was a session on Black male teachers, and that's exactly what they said. My yeah. husband retired after 42 years of teaching, and he was, in, he was one of four African-American teachers in the entire school. Mm. And he was an art teacher. They had three art teachers and it was divided based on the, what the other two teachers didn't want, yeah. you know, who they didn't want. And so he was always willing to take the students that were less likely to succeed or those that were a little bit more rambunctious and, you know, to help them become successful. And so you're correct. And that's how people viewed him, you know, in the workshop, depending mm -hmm. on the type of workshop, if we're having a, a diversity and equity workshop, certain things are said, you know, the head's turn. <laughs> and so, so, you know, they expect him to say something and, you, you know, you automatically become the spokesperson. It's a lot of weight. Yes, it is. It, it is a lot of weight. And I totally agree with you about pay because in education, we want those that can. And when you're in a category like yourself of those who can, then there's lots of things that you can do. There's lots of things that you can do that earn more than a teacher's salary. Sure, so sure. it's really a matter of you wanting to do this and you making a commitment to do this for other reasons. But you also have to be able to afford to do it. And that's the truth. You know, you have to have the means, whether you know, you have other supplemental income or you have roommate or you have a spouse or whatever, you know, you have to not only want to do it and be very committed, but you do have to financially be able to do it. That's and right. so we are constantly advocating for increasing teacher pay instead of grabbing the low hanging fruit, uh -huh. you know, that denigrate our profession. 
absolutely absolutely and i mean it's tough work right it's 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 tough work you know i think that it may be easy to look at all these things as though it's 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 malicious and contrived i'm not going to say that there isn't some of that but i'm also going to say that you know education is not as respected as it should be as an industry and so a lot of folks are under constraint you know there are district leaders who are under constraint there are you know, policymakers who are under constraint, right? But I think that we live in a society where, unfortunately, you know, we're, we're about getting the quick result. And the, the real hard work of what it is that we're trying to do, particularly when we're talking about issues of race and teachers and students, it's going to require a lot of intellectual work that we have to be invested in doing. And we live in a microwave society. We often talk about that with kids. Oh, the kids want things quick. They want everything done fast. They don't want to work hard. They just want to get it. Adults do that, too. Mm-hmm. And adult educators do that and policymakers do that and district leaders do that rather than doing the transformative work that may cost, it may cost you time, it may cost you money, it may even cost you a portion of your career. And, you know, I think that folks really have to ask themselves the question, and I'm talking about those people who are in position to do something about the very things that we're talking about on this podcast, you know, what are you in it for? And it's a hard question to ask. You know, I, I, I have a mortgage, too. <laughs> I have multiple children, too. I know that there are responsibilities that, that folks have. But I think that we also have a, a responsibility, a moral responsibility to the children that are under our care for six hours a day, seven hours a day, depending on where you work. And so, you know, we really have to be willing to engage in the wrestling of that kind of work where we challenge conventional norms, we challenge the status quo, possibly to our detriment, if it means meeting what the young people need. And that goes for all children. Right. I want to challenge you and Amy, and I want to say something that's not politically correct, doesn't sound good, but I want to put it out there and see how you all respond. So we live in the Chicago metropolitan area. We're in the South suburbs at Governor State University, which is a minority serving institution. And so the largest public school to us is Chicago Public Schools. And I don't know if you've ever been to Chicago, but it's very segregated. Mm -hmm. And so there's a huge teacher shortage in Illinois. Chicago Public School being the largest school district, that means they have the greatest teacher shortage to the tune of over 2,000 teachers this year. That's a lot of teachers, you know? And then you talk, it depends on who you talk to, and I'm sure you hear this all the time. If you are at an affluent school, if you are on the north side of Chicago, which is predominantly white, there is no teacher shortage. So Sometimes it's difficult even having this conversation mm-hmm. when someone's reality is different than your reality. You're talking about one district where half of the city does not have a shortage, and you're going to tell me that the whole 2000 shortage is on the south side of Chicago? So when we say that there's a teacher shortage and we have these mission to recruit diverse teachers, what are we saying? What are we really saying? Well, if we have teachers on the north side, why can't they just come to the south side? What are we saying, Ran and Amy? What are we saying? Why can't these teachers on the north side come to the south side? Why can't these teachers from the affluent schools, you know, in the suburbs go over to the south side? where there's open positions. Something that we found in the research we were doing with paraprofessionals was that people stayed local. I mean, paraprofessionals worked close or within the same district in which they lived. You're looking at CPS that has so many, like many districts within it because it's, it's so large. Why aren't people in 
a particular neighborhood seeking teacher credentials because a couple of things are happening here. We have an overabundance of white teachers in, and also in affluent school districts, we have a disproportionate number of African-American, Hispanic, um, Latinx, and other diverse teachers in any school district, in any of the schools within a large school district like CPS. So is the answer to kind of migrate people to different areas or do a better job of recruiting right there within the neighborhood so that they have connections with the students they teach? It's not an answer. It certainly is just an observation. And how we attract teachers to, to go into the profession and stay there it's right there in our in our backyard. And why aren't we able to get people from our backyard into, into the school? Yeah, I think that hmm, I'm going to sound really politically incorrect with, with my answer. You know, the reason why I believe it is because I don't think that many of those white teachers want to go and teach in those schools. And it's for a myriad of reasons. Maybe they don't think that it's safe in those schools. Maybe they don't believe that the students who go to those schools care about education. Maybe they don't think that their parents care about education. Maybe they grew up on the North side. And so their heart is to work with their students, students who look like them on the North side. There is a number of reasons. I, I think that you know there has to be a reckoning with the legacy of Brown versus the Board of Education. And we often talk about that in the glowing light due to the you know, knocking down of, of segregation. However, you know, true integration was not achieved with that decision. And you had black children being forced to go to uh, white schools. Black schools were closed down. Black teachers, black principals were not hired in those white education spaces. And what you have now is sort of a, a colonization, if you will, uh, or, or not colonization, it, you, you, you have refugees, you have educational refugees going to schools that are, were not typically made for them. And they are being educated by individuals who didn't ask for them to come. And over time, that sort of way of educating morphs and, and adapts to, to fit the call of, yeah, we're just going to do, do what we got to do with these kids. And if there are opportunities for us to James Crow our way out of teaching black and brown kids, then that's what we're going to do, right? We can't use the traditional methods of segregation, but we can use new creative ways to segregate. <clears throat> and so that's what many schools do. I think that for me, it always comes down to the racism. It always comes down to the racism. If we are not willing to deal with it, if we are not willing to acknowledge it and create strategic ways for handling it and actually handling it, then we will continue to have the sort of systemic inequities that we see. We'll still see the South Side struggle to maintain teachers while the North Side has an abundance of them and they're not leaving, right? And so for me, it's just, it's pretty cut and dry. How do we get more teachers in those schools? I think that if there was a real effort, well, I won't say effort, I'll say a willingness combined with an effort. If there was a willingness to teach black and brown children, if there was a real desire to do that, they could fill those schools. No question, no doubt. No question, no doubt. If there was the political will of this country to ensure that everyone had adequate health care, to make sure that all young people got an education prior to achieving, reaching kindergarten, the political will to ensure that our schools wouldn't be shot up. If there was the political will to do that, this country could do that because there's the political will to do a lot of other things, like make sure that other nations have enough weapons to fight wars against people that we don't philosophically agree with. There's the political will to make sure that we have, you know, so much money allocated in the defense budget. There's the political will to not give people their own tax money in stimulus breaks because we believe that they will be lazy if we give them money, 
right? There's the political will to do those things. So I just say that if we had the political will to fix these issues, they would be fixed. However, there is no political will. Part of that is because of what we're seeing nationally with gerrymandering, what we're seeing with these voter ID laws, what we're seeing with these policies that are preventing the teaching of true history, Black history in schools. And so unfortunately, people who have the ability to make the change are either too scared to do it or don't want to do it. And we have to confront that reality instead of you know, looking at it as, oh, you know, we, we have to do this and we got to fight harder and we have, to, we have to understand what we're up against in order to fight harder. And I think that we just have to have a, a, a instead of having rose-colored glasses, we got to take those glasses off and drink that truth serum and, and have that, what some folks say, come to Jesus meeting and really understand what it is that we're dealing with and be strategic about how to confront it and how to fight it. You speak powerful words. <laughs> In your information I read, it was important for students to know truth, to both navigate society and be empowered to change the injustice they saw and even experienced. How has being a researcher and a policy influencer affected your work as a classroom teacher? Man, well, you know, I would probably say that being a teacher sort of influenced that more than the other way around. I think that being in the classroom really influenced my desire to do the kind of research that I do and, and, and get engaged in the numbers, if you will, and, and influence my writing and, and advocacy. The things that have really influenced my teaching, I, I would probably say, and my kids would hate it if I said it, but it's just the truth, reading, just reading. I, I think over the last 10 years, I've read more than I've ever read in my entire life. And it's just because I think the nature of being an educator, you're always learning, you're always wanting to improve as an educator. And, you know, just reading books on being a better educator sort of led me to reading books on uh, history and where we are as a nation and where we, we come from as a nation. And so, you know, th through that, that has really helped me in the classroom uh, I'm certainly a better teacher than I was 10 years ago, that's for sure. And I thought I was good then, but I know that I'm much better than where I where I was at that point. There's just a level of, I guess, righteous fire. There's certainly a level of experience and age that 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 it comes along with what I'm doing right now. And, you know, I'm not as angry as I used to be you know when you're young you're angry <laughs> you see stuff going on and you're just mad and all those things but as as I've gotten older and had children and, and married and all those sort of things I, I look at things sort of the same but but differently I'm a lot more measured but I've come to recognize the the politics of being an educator and that the greatest thing that I can do above anything else is teach my students what it is that that folks around the country don't want them to know and teach them truth and teach them about the America that is and how it got to be that. So that way they're prepared for the world that awaits them. And if, if I can help facilitate young people to be able to make take those fights to the next level, that's that's more than I could have ever done on my own arguing and going back and forth. So um yeah, I would say that my teaching influences my activism uh, and writing. I, I would say that sort of my, you know, experiences and, and, and thoughts and, you know, wrestlings and, and, you know, going back and forth in my own mind has sort of influenced my teaching. In addition to what I said earlier, just being the educator that I wish I had for myself. Yeah, you are certainly building the next generation. And I think that that's what we have a responsibility to, to do as teachers. And so when you talk about the will of the people and why things are the way that they are, I mean, you're being very, very smart about it and very strategic about it, that you're going to build that next generation to help make those decisions. <laughs> so there's a lot of power in that. And when we were talking about the will of the people, it just baffles me of how we have some P-12 schools that look like universities and you can go into another school 
and half the building is shut down because of mold and the students have books that are 10 years old. Here in the US, how do we do that? How do we send billions of dollars to another country and then we have inequality in our own schools? It can only be by design that that is even able to happen in the US. Okay, but I'm gonna get off of that for a while because <laughs> we have to, that's, we can get on that another day. Well, look, if I, if, if I, I can jump in with one comment mm -hmm. and this is more, less, more so to encourage folks that are in those situations. You know, I think back to those black schools during the uh, Jim Crow era, the separate but equal. And, you know, oftentimes people talk about how those schools were separate and unequal mm -hmm. uh, in terms of facilities and all the other stuff. But I think one thing is lost in that is that, you know, going back to Brown versus Board of Education, Leola Brown, Linda Brown's mother, uh, and Oliver Brown, both of her parents, they did not you know, launched that case because they felt that their school where Linda went was bad. They launched that case because they wanted Linda to go to a closer school. That's that's all. And and the mom shared on a podcast with Malcolm Gladwell that she had no problem with the school. The school was wonderful. And so, you know, even though there are challenges, there are there's some great work happening in schools that are, you know, less than desirable in terms of resources and things of that nature. And, and my last point is, if you consider those schools, particularly during the Jim Crow era, era prior to the civil rights movement, those Black schools that were separate and unequal produced the generation that became the civil rights movement. And so I say that to say that even though there are challenges, there's so much that can happen and so much good stuff that is happening, which is why it's important for particularly teachers of color to want to go back into those schools. And they do go back into those schools because even with you know lacking some resources, there's so much that can be done and so much that is being done. Yeah, and that comes from from having prolific writers and teachers like yourself, you know, and that bring all of that truth and those resources to the classroom. I want to talk, I want to get into your writing and some of the things that you're currently working on. And when we get into your writing, I'm still always amazed of how you are in the grind every day teaching. That means that you're, you know, you're working on the curriculum, you're assessing your students, there's always something going on. There's activities going on. And yet you have a family and you, <laughs> then you find time to be an advocate for other teachers, to move things forward, to do scholarly research. How do you maintain and prioritize your teaching scholarship and a balance of being a, a, a husband and father? If I knew the answer, I would gladly tell you. I don't know. I, I don't know how. Honestly, I, I'm just I'm just flying off the handle with it. I can't even claim to be that good. <laughs> I'm not that you, good. You are. Let me tell you. <laughs> you you are that good. And you know, just reading your blog. Trust me, you are that good. And thank you. I you appreciate know, hopefully that. Hopefully, one of the things that keeps you going is the fact that people are reading it, it touches lives, it's making teachers continue to stay in the game. So it's definitely having impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that's certainly it. You know, you kind of get lost in the fact of doing the work that you don't realize who's looking at the work, who's digesting it and things of that nature. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention my wife who makes a lot of things possible in terms of just managing and and helping me out and understanding that, that, you know, what I do is kind of like it, 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 I guess the best way to put it, it's just like a, a, you know, something that you can't stop. It's like an itch that you can't scratch. You gotta scratch it. You know, like if your little fly gets on your nose, you can't just leave it there. You gotta get it. And so for me, there's so many ideas and thoughts and, and opinions and things that I want to look at and do that I just can't not do. And, and I guess that that's just sort of the gift, if you will, the gift and the curse. Right now, I have a, a piece coming out in March. I'm, I'm looking right at it just so I can get the title right. It's a research article. It'll be coming out with the Journal of Education and Cultural Studies in March 
uh, just got approved. It's, it's titled New Jersey's Black Teachers Characteristics of the school districts where they work. So I'm just looking at, you know, where Black teachers are. Um, We know certainly that the data shows that they are with Black students, but, you know, sort of wanted to get the the idea of where they are specifically with those Black students. So that comes out in March. I'm not sure how familiar you folks are with um, the Center for Black Educator Development out of Philadelphia. Sharif El-Mekki, who is the executive director, I work with them for them, I'm writing for their blog as well. So I, I generally have monthly features coming out there and, and the course diversity and in, 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 in ed, working with them and then doing some other things. I'm working on an article with Edutopia coming out on how to make your social studies classes a little bit more rigorous. I just got an article published with Progressive Magazine looking at you know, the problem with originalism as a, 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 you know, like a philosophy with the Supreme Court, really focusing on the, the affirmative action case that's going to be uh, litigated and, and decided soon. And then that with the, with my book and, and everything else, it's just, you know, you, you find the time. And then of course the kids at home, my kids, they, they're like, no, nah, you know, they'll pull me from the computer and, you know, all kinds of stuff and, and playing and talking and, and everything. And my kids are young. They're like 10, seven and six. So, you know, that work isn't going to be going on, on too much. So there's some late nights at work. <laughs> there, there's some, there's some late nights at work and sort of using my time judiciously. Like as soon as I leave here, I'm going to do basketball practice with my son, take him to that. So yeah, you just, you just, you just find the time where you have it, you find it where you have it and you just, you, you make it work. Wow. Well, what you've referenced here, we will link in our show notes. I'm excited about that. One last question. You mentioned a book and we included that in the introduction. Could you tell us just a little sneak preview about your upcoming book and we can include some information in our show notes for that so we can get people directed in your to where they can get that in January. Sure, sure. So the book is called Resistance Stories from Black History for Kids. It is a children's book, but it's it's probably a high level children's book where I have a lot of notes and sourcing and and all kinds of stuff. And so, you know, kids, it's, it's not your traditional kids book with a bunch of things in it. It's, it's, it's built in a it's sort of a scholarly tradition. And the, 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 it's, it's a book that I've always wanted to write. I've, I've dreamed of writing textbooks. And while this isn't a textbook, it, it's a book that relays a number of stories of resistance in, in African-American history. I think that young people are often taught that sort of Black people were complicit in their oppression, that there was never any fight back, and the rights that we achieved were somehow bestowed upon us by the benevolence of, of white people, good-natured white people. And while there is some level of, you know, storytelling that can be done in that way, there's also a rich tradition of resistance in, in the African-American community. And resistance isn't just in the form of revolts. But there were a number of revolts. I talk about that in the text, talking about how there are on record 250 revolts from the start of this nation in 1776 all the way into the Civil War, and the Civil War really being a great revolt. There were a number of different instances where I talk about how African women, enslaved African women, used a form of contraception to prevent having children for them to be enslaved in the antebellum South. There are stories about how nations throughout the diaspora, Haiti, Mexico, Cuba, how they, you know, try to forge a, a union where they could go after various nations, countries, uh, colonies that were enslaving Africans so that way they could free more Africans in the Western Hemisphere and the diaspora. There are stories about Dr. King where, you know, he and his message has been whitewashed and sort of, you know, who he really was. And even talking about the Black Panthers and and their influences with the creation of Panthers in Australia and in Israel to fight injustice. And one one more tidbit, I I guess I'll share, I, I, you know, stories about Africa, and just starting there, the book begins with with Africa, We, we often think about Black history starting in 
you know, the start of this country or even 1619 and no shot at all to Hannah, uh, Nicole Hannah Jones and, and all of the wonderful writers of the 1619 Project, but I wanted to start where our history is, and that's in Africa. It's in the continent. And so we start there with talking about a number of different issues. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the book. I'm happy about the book. It's a book I've, like I said, always wanted to write. And I hope to get it in the hands in as many kids that I possibly can, as well as parents. It's a book that parents can read. They can read it to their kids. So I'm just hoping that that it, it catches on. I know it's going to piss some folk off. I know. That's, that's, a, okay. that's, a, power, that's, that's okay. a powerful children book. When you look at the title, you're like, children? <laughs> that sounds sound like a book that I should be reading, but I can imagine the impact as a child reading something like that. Thank yes, you. Thank yeah. you for doing that. Thank you for that oh. contribution. No, uh, so it was a pleasure and privilege to do so. And maybe by the time this is published, we will have that link to the book. Oh, oh, absolutely. Well, I, it's available for pre-sale. I have to send you oh. all the link. It is available. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, a couple of other distributors. But yeah, I can send you that. Absolutely. That is wonderful. Thank yeah. you so much for joining us. We're going to let you get out of here so that you can go do basketball. <laughs> <laughs> go be a dad. Thank you so much. It has been a great pleasure. Uh, likewise. Yeah. Thank you so much, ladies. I appreciate it. Fantastic. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning Theory versus Practice with Dr. Amy Viaclia and Dr. Joy Patterson. We hope that you have been inspired by this conversation and will join us again as we talk about trends in education and perspectives on teaching. We welcome your comments and feedback. What conversations are you interested in hearing? We'll leave it up to you, our listeners. Did theory or practice win the match? I think it was theory, probably, this time. Uh, practice. Until next time, we're Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy.